Good morning. Hey, there we are. Hurry. I was going to say, I, I was in this room like three minutes ago when the wall, the roof was about to come off from the volume, so I know we can do better than that. And I'm totally messing up the guitar set up here. Sorry, Paul. Just in case I uh, feel like moving a little bit, have a little bit of freedom there. Uh, man, it is so good to be uh, here this morning, and it? it's uh, such a powerful time of worship, and just to be in one heart, one spirit, with one another, lifting up praise. It's one thing to kind of be at home, kind of singing along to YouTube playlists or whatever, you know, but to come here together and to lift up our voice uh, with one another as the family of faith. There's just something really special about that. And, uh, and especially, I, I don't know if it's like post-COVID, how much more I, I, I don't. I don't, want that, I don't want my heart to take that for granted, you know. I want to make sure and recognize, man, God, thank you for that privilege. And so, uh, and I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to, uh, to preach this morning and just to stand here and, and to share God's word. We're continuing on this morning in our series that we've been walking through the last few weeks called Faith That Works as we look at James chapter 1. And uh, the last couple of weeks, Mark has preached some really powerful messages and today we're moving on to our, our passage, verses uh, 5 to 8, as, as Jeremy introduced for us. Thank you, Jeremy. And, uh, and we're going to be thinking about the idea of expectations. Expectations. We all have them, uh, whether good or bad, we all have expectations. And uh, that theme really hit home for me this week. Adina was away for a few nights uh, visiting her sister, and so the kids and I were having a great time hanging out together. But one night, I decided I wanted to do something a little special for us. I decided, you know what? I'll order a Chinese for us, and, uh, and it'd be great. Our, the kids and I, we both love, we all love Chinese. It'd be fun. Uh, just have a Chinese night. And as I pulled up my app to figure out where I wanted to order from, from my, a couple of go-tos, I saw that they were both closed, both my places. And I was like, uh-oh, um, we're in unchart- uncharted territory here. I don't know any of the places that are open. I guess we're just going to go with, you know, what I see, the recommendations. So we order the food. It arrives actually pretty quickly. Um, it wasn't Jeremy who delivered, but you know what? That's okay. We got over that fact. Uh, and and uh, the food, it smelled delicious. We got it inside. It was nice. And I mean, it's just steam coming out of the package. And uh, everything was, seemed perfect until we opened the lid to discover what we had normally ordered from every other place came to us in a different form that my kids promptly went like, Ooh, and I was like, expectations did not meet reality on that one. Uh, we all have expectations in life. Husbands and wives expect to have a loving relationship. Parents expect for their kids to, to be respectful to and obedient children. Uh, we expect certain things from society, from our jobs, from government. We expect that when we sit down in our local cafe that our order comes back to us the way we, we ordered it. Uh, we expect at the start of the league year to be this time celebrating and not weeping. Uh, we all have expecta- expectations. And so Dean and I have been leading others in some form uh, over the last 23 years as we've been in ministry. And at times that, that's uh, it's been in the local church kind of setting. And other times it's been on a team of folks who do what we do, planting churches for the sake of making disciples. And in that 23 years, the thing uh, that we've discovered is that conflict, more times than not, can usually be traced back to the root of unmet expectations. Expectations, they're, they're crucial, they're huge. And, uh, and, and, and how we respond when those expectations 
aren't met uh, is something in it. Uh, we all have a million of them in life. But what about our expectations when it comes to God? What do we expect from God? Uh, do we have healthy expectations as we think about who God is and our relationship with Him? Um, that's our theme today is our relationship with Him. Um, that's our theme today as, as we are examining this passage in, in James chapter 1. So let's start off by reading this passage once again together. It's going to be on the screen for us, uh, but feel free to, to read along digitally or analog in front of you this morning. James chapter 1, starting in verse 5, says, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubters like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. I've been uh, following Jesus for almost 38 years now. Thank you for those of you who did not show any surprise on your face that I've been alive for more than 38 years. That was so kind of you. Uh, throughout much of that journey of following Jesus, I've come back to this passage over and over again. Uh, it's consistently been a place that's reminded me how the Lord grants us wisdom when we needed it. And at some point along the way, uh, this passage became this highlighted spot in my Bible that was almost removable from the context that I could just pull it out and read it, and, and especially if I was in need in wisdom. But as I've grown in maturity in Christ, I've come to realize how important context is to how we read the Bible, how it informs the meaning. And I've begun to, to have a clearer understanding of what the Apostle James is saying here. And so as not to make the mistake here this morning uh, of, of doing that, removing context, let's read that one more time, but let's also include what Mark preached on last week, as well as what's going to be preached next week. Uh, those kind of the bookends before and after that passage. So let's back up a couple of verses and start in, in verse 2 of chapter 1. We can do this. I know it's the third time, but it's okay. We'll, we'll get it. Maybe this time we'll remember it. Missional community, I don't know if you do that. We used to do that at the end of it, go around and say, all right, who can say the passage from memory? I don't know if some of you are like, are twitching right now from like post-traumatic stress. I don't know. Uh, verse 2 says, consider it a great joy. Consider it a great joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all its ways. Verse 9, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while uh, pursuing his activities. And verse 12 says, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Man, thanks be to God for the reading of his word this morning. Uh, as you can see, there's more going on in this passage than James simply giving instructions for the occasional moment that we have a fork in the road and not sure what to do. 
Um, do I buy this kind of television or this kind of television? What about this car or this car? What about this Chinese place or this Chinese place? It's a little more to it than, than that. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've been really challenged the last couple of weeks as Mark has preached on the verses prior to this. Uh, Mark's message on suffering last week, man, that was what my heart needed to hear. I needed to, to be reminded of that. Do I count difficulty and suffering as a great joy? Or do I moan about it? Usually it's the latter, honest, if I'm just really honest. Do I embrace the Spirit's work of letting endurance have its full effect in my life so that I grow in my maturity of Christ? Or do I complain about it? I've been continuing just to reflect on that question all week and really how I respond to the moments or seasons of trials. And, and honestly, I'm not where I want to be yet, but, um, but maybe you resonate with, with my confession of that. And if so, I want to share something with you, a quote this morning uh, that, that I came across this week, a quote from a 19th century British theologian and commentator uh, whose name was Robert Johnston. He captured my response to, to last week's message very poignantly, and, and he wrote these words. It'll be on the screen. He wrote it referring really to a response to James 1, 2 to 4. He says, At this point, the thought naturally occurs to the mind of a reader of the epistle, I am sadly wanting in power to exhibit this grace of patience. I'm unable to discern clearly or to keep my heart steadily fixed on those truths which are fitted to maintain holy peace within it, but lose myself in a crowd of conflicting thoughts and feelings. This thought is taken up and res responded to by the apostle, referring to our passage. On its own, uh, James 1, 5 to 8, is, is uh, de in devoid of any context, it's a really powerful passage. But this morning's sermon is really kind of part two of what we talked about last week on suffering. And Mark ex examined how suffering, as difficult as it is, can actually be what shapes us into the people that God wants us to be if we'll let it. And that's the key, isn't it? If we will let and be obedient to what God wants to do, what he's calling us to do. Uh, and so this reality then radically shapes how we understand these first four verse, uh, verses so if this isn't a general comment on making decisions on, on your uh, Friday night Chinese order or your curry order, uh, then that means it actually has a really pointed and focused meaning that is communicating. So let's look at the what. This I have three questions this morning, the what, the how, and the when. So the what this morning, I think it's a helpful place to start as we examine the word wisdom. What exactly is James talking about when he says the word wisdom? Ask of God. Ask him, if any of you likes wisdom, ask of God. Uh, in this world, the word wisdom means a whole lot of different things depending on where you are in the world. It means a whole lot of things here, but it can mean a whole lot of different things in America, where I'm from, or from where some of you are from. It means a totally different thing. So culture ascribes a whole lot of different meanings to that word depending on where you are. But James, writing this, coming from a Jewish background, this concept would have had a really significant meaning for him. We've already seen in the weeks past how James is speaking to a New Testament church using some references from the Old Testament. In the verse 1, he's talking about, he's writing to the, the nations, I mean to, to the tribes dispersed abroad, the 12 tribes. He's using some Old Testament language to point to some New Testament realities. In the same way, James is referring to wisdom in a deeper way than just give me the answer, give me some understanding. 
uh, for the choice that's, that's ahead of me. In places like Proverbs, wisdom is actually personified. It, it's spoken of as a person. And that's because through inspired human authors, the Spirit's trying to help us understand wisdom from God's perspective, from His point of view, which is totally different from our point of view, which is, is, is a good thing, by the way. Uh, and, and God exists in a completely different way than us, doesn't He? He exists in a way that we can't fully comprehend. Just the fact that we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, of the same essence, of the same, same being, we can't wrap our brains around that. It's like a, 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 a two-dimensional person trying to describe the third dimension. That, that we, people tell me it's there, but I can't actually see it. That's the way we, we kind of are trying to understand who God is. And in the same way, how he's completely different from us, how he's holy, how he's other, he's unique in his perfection, so also is his perception of all things, how he sees the whole playing field. He sees everything. We just see from our finite perspective. Therefore, when we pray for wisdom, what we're really asking for is for the same perspective and understanding that God has. God, give me wisdom. God, give me the ability to see things as you see them. Now, granted, it's not on the infinite scale like he is, but in this particular situation, Lord, help me to see all the things I need to see the way you see them. Uh, when the biblical writers describe wisdom in terms of a person, they're trying to convey not, not only just how different and foreign God is from us, but how foreign his understanding is. That's why he says, my, my ways are not like your ways. Your, your thoughts, God, are, are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our, our, thought, our ways. It's why over and over again we're told throughout Proverbs to pursue wisdom because God's ways are higher than ours. Not just so that we can make good choices, but so that we can have the actual perspective of God. And I began to kind of articulate it this way after reading from that same theologian, Robert Johnston, who I just referenced, because he wrote this about trying to describe the wisdom of God. Wisdom is looking at the matter from the point of view which an immortal creature ought to take. And I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. Um, that's a bit different than the perspective than you and I have, isn't it? And that understanding now helps us as we break down our passage in verse 5. It says, now, if any of you lacks wisdom, the perspective that I have, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously, ungrudgingly, not stingily, not economically, not thriftily, but generously, ungrudgingly, lavishly. In the context of suffering, trials, persecution. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God. And now that we've seen that this isn't just a general call, a specific wisdom for a specific moment, let's think through what this looks like. So uh, when we face moments of crisis, suffering, trials, there is always a choice that we have to make. And Mark briefly kind of introduced this last week. And you and I must decide how we're going to respond to the circumstances that aren't in our control. Are we going to trust the Lord? Or are we going to effectively doubt Him by looking to someone else or something else as the answer to what we need? How will we respond? Depending on the situation, that choice is either made kind of in an instant or it's made over a season of life. And, and what I've taken away from this is, is I've been just kind of doing a deep dive on this concept is there, there's this almost in-between moment that happens, this friction that we live in. 
And sometimes it's just in an instant of, am I going to trust the Lord in this situation or am I not? Or sometimes the, the Lord lets us linger for a little while, just dangling kind of the situation out there. Are we going to trust him or not? And in that moment of decision, we find the context of this verse. It's almost the situation arises and I don't, I'm overwhelmed. I'm, I'm in, enduring su- suffering, persecution, trials, and I have a decision to make. Am I going to trust the Lord? Am I actually going to trust him enough to ask him for wisdom to know how to embrace this, endure this? Or am I going to try to make the way on my own to try to figure out how to get out of this, to try to make a way for myself? In that moment of confusion or where your entire world is just spinning, do you need the perspective of God? And the obvious answer is yes, we need the perspective of God. That means James is making a statement that could also be understood as if you need wisdom, from if you need wisdom to whenever you need wisdom. In those moments, none of us have the best vantage point. In our limited perspective, we all need it. And because God is not like us, he will never withhold this from us. There's no grudge. That's what it said, ungrudgingly. He will never, if, if we are in Christ, our sins are done. It's not like he's, oh, remember last week though? I would give it to you, but I, I, I remember last week. No, ungrudgingly, ungrudgingly in his gifting of this. And now that's not my opinion. That's not speculation. That is, that is what that says, right? So, all right, just checking. Um, that means when cancer is on the table at the doctor appointment, this promise is there to meet you. When a close family member or a friend abandons you, which happens, that is there to meet you. When you lose your job out of the blue, something, some situation pops up that turns your world upside down. When you get news like we did this week of a family member just suddenly passing away, this promise is there to meet you. God grants us wisdom in a way that helps us to continue walking in a way that we were challenged last week by counting it all joy, by delighting that endurance is having its full effect in my life. I cannot begrudge that, but I actually embrace that and delight that God in his mercy and in his grace would allow me to walk through that as hard and difficult as it is, that these aren't empty circumstances These aren't empty trials and things I'm walking through. They are a means that he uses to continue to help us to trust him more and reflect him more. To show his, to share more of his greatness with others who are far from him. This week in my Bible reading plan, I was in Psalm 105 uh, one day and and there David recounts the story of God's people. It's like this section of the Psalms where almost all of them are like a story of the Old Testament and people. And, 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 and Psalm 105, this, this section grips me in verses 17 to 19 as the psalmist is recounting uh, the life of Joseph during his time in captivity in Egypt. And he just spends a few verses and he, 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 he references uh, the life of Joseph. And, and this literally jumped off the page at me as I was thinking about this sermon. Look at how... In verses 16 to to 20, how Joseph's captivity in Egypt is described. This will be up on the screen for us. He, God, called down famine against the land of Egypt and destroyed the entire food supply. He had sent a man ahead of them, though, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. 
Look at verse 18 and 19. They hurt his feet with shackles. His neck was put on in an iron collar. Until the time his prediction came true, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent for him and released him. The ruler of people set him free. Now, I read that and was first just gripped by that description in verse 18, which is not revealed in the Genesis account to us. As you read through Joseph's story, we get the sense that this is kind of a work release program. You know, he's kind of doing his thing. He has a lot of freedom, and Joseph does. But this verse 18 says his feet are in shackles. His neck has an iron collar on it at one point. So that's a difficult situation. And then I got to verse 19, and I realized that this is exactly what we're talking about last week and this week, that Joseph, if you remember, he's given the ability to interpret dreams. He's given this gift by God to, have, to be able to, to interpret dreams that people have and to speak about what God is saying through in the midst of that. And for Joseph first interpreted, his very first dream he interpreted was his own about his own family. And, he, and they're appalled that he would even suggest that one day they're going to bow down to him. And so later on, he, he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's servants while he's in prison. And then what Psalm 105 shares, shares more light on here is that there had to be a season of testing in Joseph's life. Joseph was sharing the message he received from God about those dreams. So on one level, if you think about this, he's speaking the words of the Lord. And what we call that is prophecy. He's God's mouthpiece to others. So in one sense, these were prophetic in nature. And that's why verse 19 here says, until the time his prediction came true, the word of the Lord, of the prophecy that he's talking about, it tested him. Now think back to that first dream Joseph interpreted. It was his own dream that his family, his mom, his dad, his brothers, are all going to bow down before him. With his prediction in verse 19, those words, what that's talking about is that initial dream of him ruling over his family. The word of the Lord tested him is referring to the span of time that he was going to have to endure being away from his family, being in captivity, being in prison before he came to power. Why do you think the Lord did that? I mean, that's a long time to be tested. But if you remember, even after he rightly explained the Pharaoh's servant's dreams, he immediately wasn't set free. I mean, it was another two years. That's what it said. Two years goes by. I mean, did he trust the Lord in those days? Did he trust that what the Lord had shown him was true? I think so, but it took all those years to get him from point A to point B because consider Joseph's trajectory. We, t we talked about this not long ago in our sermon series. Think about his background. Growing up, he was the favored son in the family. And that's not metaphorically or figuratively. Literally what the text tells us is that he was the favored son, given the best of the things. He was given first place. Yet he was Joseph had several other older brothers. He was, he was always shown preferential treatment. The mentality this could have easily caused in Joseph's life would be one of entitlement, one of arrogance, one of thinking I am so much better than my brothers because my dad favors me. It took Joseph walking through horrific experience to grow in humility and dependence upon the Lord for him to get to the place where, okay, I can actually be God's mouthpiece to Pharaoh, the king of the land. It took waiting day after day after day, all the while the word of the Lord is testing him to grow that supreme confidence in God so that he can stand before the king of the land and say, this is not my interpretation, this is actually from God. This is not what are my words, this is God's words. And this is Pharaoh, this is what God says to you. 
Now, Joseph, from the beginning of the story, don't know that he says that. He probably boasts in that. Yeah, I can interpret your dream. But Joseph, after a season of testing and growing in his dependence upon the Lord, no, he's to the point where he can do this. To the point that at the end of the story, he has counted it all joy and says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God saved our family. It's okay. God saved our family through this. So could it be, I say all of that for this, could it be that sometimes the Lord allows trials and difficulty in your life and in my life because of what it will produce in us? Could it be that this is not a punishment from God or judgment from God, but actually what God wants to grow inside of you to produce in you so that he can make much of you who will make much of him before a watching world around you? Could it be that instead of saying, why me, God? Why would you do this to me? Shouldn't we be asking, will you show me how you want to grow me through this, Lord? Will you show me how you want to use this in my life? Give me your perspective. Give me wisdom as I endure this, as I walk through this, as I try to figure out even how to sort the things in my life. Help me to count it as great joy that this is happening. Because let's be honest, that's not any of our natural defaults. None of us, not one in the room, that is our natural default. It's not mine and it's not yours, and we can all be honest about that today. That kind of response is not what we naturally go to. No, that's the work of a holy God inside of us that cultivates that, that grows that. A God who is for his people, a God who has purposes for his people. So in that moment of friction that we talked about, am I going to trust God or not, what will you decide to do? Will you choose to trust the Lord? Will you willfully lean into what he wants to, to do in you? Brothers and sisters, I can tell you that sometimes that prayer is answered instantly. But sometimes we have to walk the path of Joseph, and it takes day after day or week after week, year after year, before we see God's uh, answering of that prayer. Continue to, to, to trust the Lord and to seek him. Look at verses 6 to 8 as we move on this morning. Let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubters like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. We talked a little bit about the what? Wisdom. Now, we're not going to take nearly as long in the next two. Don't worry. Let's think about the when and the how. When should you ask for this? When should you ask for wisdom? Given what we now know about the context of the passage, when's the right time or occasion? I was talking with a good friend, a good pastor friend back in America uh, this week about this very thing, and we were laughing because he just preached on this. And, and uh, being both Baptist preachers, we both kind of had alliteration that came out of this, this idea. And uh, so it was funny. He had his three C's, and I have my three C's of when you want to do this. And so there was a little bit of overlap, and it was hilarious. But for me, here are my three C's if you're ready to go, if you're taking notes. Number one, the moment of crisis. The moment of crisis. When we ask the Lord, uh, we ask the Lord when the moment of crisis strikes, when the adrenaline is pumping to the point that it's just noise all around. Uh, you, you just potentially have that tunnel vision. You ever been there where it's like, I can't even, I can't even think straight. I just, I, I just have tunnel vision because my adrenaline is pumping. Or we ask the Lord for wisdom in the middle of persecution. When, when you know that only a holy God can help me in this moment, I, am, I have no ability whatsoever to get myself out of this situation, the moment of crisis. Second, the moment of chaos. 
when, uh, we ask the Lord, when, when chaos strikes your life and the noise of what's just happened has seemingly taken away every bit of order that there was, where every kind of foothold that I had has been swept away and it is just chaos ruling. We go to the Lord requesting clarity. God, give me clarity right now. Give me understanding when there's just so much noise from the circumstance. We ask for wisdom to know how to even respond in that moment of chaos. And thirdly, in the moment of confusion, we ask the Lord when everything is just spinning and spiraling. Metaphorically, you're, una- you're just unable to think clearly. I don't know if anybody ever else has ever been in that situation where just, God, I don't even, I feel like I can't even think straight right now from this situation that's just happened. When there's a moment that you, you don't know which way to go and you feel like you, you just can't even determine north or south on the compass. I mean, it's just like the compass is spinning. Which way is even north right now? I don't even know. The moment of confusion. Are you in a season where your world is just spinning this morning? Or there's just chaos ruling? Just crisis, whatever's going on. Have the circumstances of your life flipped everything on its head? Go to the Lord and ask him for wisdom, and he will grant it to you. He's faithful to do that. That's the when. Finally, let's look at the how. How? How do we do this? In one sense, the how is is with the right kind of expectations that we entered with, having the right kind of expectations, not about the situation, not about ourselves, but having the right expectations about God. Uh, See, we all have expectations of God, but the issue of fundamental importance today is whether or not those expectations are rooted in healthy understanding and perception of who God is or the wrong understanding of who God is. James tells us, when we encounter these moments or seasons that God invites us to ask him for his perspective and he doesn't give it to us grudgingly but in a spirit of generosity and we're to do that in a way that's how? Full of faith. Full of faith. James uses some pretty strong language, negative language here to describe uh, what faith looks like. Look at how he describes the one who doubts in verse 6. Starting that second sentence, For the doubters like the surging sea, driven, tossed by the wind, The person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. That's pretty harsh. Being double-minded, ouch, unstable in all his ways. So is he saying here that unless we just muster up enough faith in our own hearts, that not only will we not receive wisdom, but we're kind of cursed and doomed to be this double-minded person? That's not what he's saying here. The, The key to this verse is understanding the nature of faith, or more specifically, the object of our faith. And then this, it's not about us in this passage. We want to read ourselves into this passage, but this is all about who God is and his character. This is not a name it, claim it kind of prosperity situation where if I just kind of keep repeating the same thing over and over, trying to convince myself enough to believe this, or if I keep just building this up in my heart, trying to manipulate my own heart, that I'll get what I need from God. That's not how this is working out. That's not at all what James is describing. One, God doesn't want us to manipulate him or our own selves, first of all. I'll just say that. Second, doing that would mean that actually we're the ones who, uh, who earned that and not God giving it to us. If I can build up enough faith in my own heart to get what I need from God, really it's me who gets it and not God giving it to me, right? So if that's the case... If this is uh, the key here, is that the object this is about the object of our faith, God. Will we be willing to trust Him? That's what this passage is asking us. Will you be willing to trust Him? 
Not that just that he will give it, but can he even do this? Can he even answer our prayers? Is that his character? Will we trust his character, his power, his ability, all of those things? Will you and I have the faith to trust God that not only he can, but that he will? He's faithful to do what he says he'll do. Those are our implications of the verses today. It's the person who doubts who God is that James is talking about. That's why you see this really dark and sad picture in verse 8. Uh, James uses a Greek word here, deepsikos. I had to, like you last week, I had to like practice that. How do you, I didn't even know how to say that. Deepsikos. It literally means a person made up of two brains. And the two brains are at continual conflict with one another. One is constantly saying yes. The other is constantly saying no. Double-minded, unstable in all its ways literally at odds internally. William Barclay, unpacking this Greek word, word deepsikos, he says this, the man is a walking civil war in which trust and distrust of God wage a continual battle against each other. A walking civil war. It's a pretty descriptive picture, isn't it? Make no mistake, this is not talking about a curse from God for not having enough faith. No, this is describing the repercussions in our life when we choose to disbelieve God. That's just naturally what happens. When we choose to disbelieve God, this is what we evolve into. The one who trusts God grants them perspective. But the one who trusts God, God grants them perspective to see clearly, which brings his comfort and peace. Having understanding brings peace that we need. And not from the fact of simply being able to see clearly, but it gives us a perspective that actually God is the one who gives. Oh, wow, God is in control. Look at how powerful he is. It, puts, it aligns our perspective into, my gosh, you are all powerful and worthy of my worship. I, I am not worthy of this, so I'm going to worship you even more. We recognize his faithfulness, his sovereign control. But let's just take a second to consider those who, uh, who may even have difficulty trusting God because that may be some of us in the room this morning. I go back to my initial question this morning. What are your expectations of who God is? What are your expectations of God? Are they rooted in what the Bible says about Him? What Scripture reveals about Him? Are they healthy and right? If you have trouble trusting God, I, I gently ask this this morning. Who else are you going to trust? Are you going to trust yourself? We, we're all finite creatures, prone to error. Are you going to trust someone else? Or are you going to trust the infinite one who is not prone to error, who is faithful, perfectly faithful in all his ways? Trusting in others or yourself is futile, and that's what verse 7 is talking about. It describes that endeavor like you're in a small boat out in a stormy sea. I don't know if you've ever been out in open water in a boat uh, and a storm pops up. It is terrifying, unless you've done it a million times, I guess. But for me, it was terrifying. Um, just this ability of how are we even going to get back to shore? You can't even see shore. You're so far out in the water. Uh, th- there's no sense of stability. If you feel helpless. More precisely, verse 7 is really speaking in terms of our faith being present one moment and gone the next. Kind of the crest of the wave that moves in, that's my faith, only followed by the trough. There's my faith gone constantly, in and out, in and out, in and out. James says here that he's unstable in all his ways. That's whole life action, right? Not just in his heart, not just in his mind, in his ways he's unstable. So not only do we distrust God 
but you're telling me that that actually evolves into my whole life now? I'm unstable in my actions? Yes, that's what this is saying. When we choose not to trust who God is, it eventually leads us to this place where there's no instability. There's no stability in my life. Let me just say this this morning as we begin to kind of wrap up. Don't buy the lie that God is withholding something good from you, that he is not faithful. That's the same lie that, that Adam and Eve were given all the way back in the garden. That actually, you could be like God if you just eat this fruit, but God's withholding being like him. That's the reason he made that rule. Just eat the fruit. It's okay. But that's not who God is. Adam and Eve's unhealthy, ungodly expectations of what God should have granted them led to this hard, harsh reality of sin entering into the world, of us being separated from God. No, the truth is God has promised to generously give us what is best, and that is his understanding. So for the sake of clarity, let me recap and move on to our closing it's okay to be unsure of what to do. That's not what I'm saying this morning. It's okay to be unsure of how God's even going to move, but our surety should be in who God is and that he is faithful. The key is actually confessing that to the Lord, coming into him in humility and saying, God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I know that you can, and I trust you to do this. I trust that you're bigger than this situation. I finished this morning by reflecting on this amazing promise in light of our right expectations, because we all have them. In one sense, we're all expectant. We either expect negatively of God or we rightly have faith in Him. What are your expectations of God? Do they line up with what we see in Scripture? Do you believe and trust Him? Two weeks ago, Mark introduced this letter to us, and he unpacked how James describes himself in verse 1. James, the, the apostle, but the servant of Christ, right? Not the brother of Christ, but the servant of Christ. James, the younger brother of Jesus, I mean, I, I, you're right. Can you even imagine, like, being having my older brother is literally perfect? Like, literally perfect. Never done anything wrong. Mom and dad are like, can't you be more like Jesus, you know? <laughs> That's James' childhood growing up, you know? <laughs> But James echoes some of Jesus' most important and iconic teaching here in verse 5. And it's almost like the words from his older brother are, are in his head and ringing in his heart as he writes this verse down. Uh, and and he, he just responds with echoing Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks, he, he finds. The one who knocks, the door is open. Who among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? As a parent, man, I feel verses 9 to 11 on such a deep level. Even in my own selfish, sinful heart, my overwhelming desire is to give good things to my children. Even when I'm grumpy, even on my worst of days, still deep within my heart is this desire to give good things to my children, as any parent can attest in this room. And if that's the case with my fallen, flawed heart, man, how much more is it God's desire to give us good things from his perfect heart, his perfect nature? Brothers and sisters, in the moment of crisis today, are you in a moment of crisis, chaos, or confusion? And I ask, man, ask the Lord. Ask you to ask the Lord for wisdom. 
Go to him for wisdom. Do you need perspective or clarity? And today we recognize that the reality is not, not everyone in the room, the room of this number of people would be in relationship with Jesus, would have taken an opportunity to trust that Jesus is the way to God. And so today, if that's you, if you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, we want to have an opportunity after, afterwards for you to, to do that, to talk to us, to ask questions, to, to receive prayer over that. And if that's you, I want to tell you today that there is a God in heaven who offers a way to have love, to have peace, to have hope, to have the, the storms of your life settled. Uh, not that you will have be free of any kind of troubles, but that God will be present with you in the midst of those storms. A God who lavishes his love generously upon us. See, everyone, this is the Bible says, every single one of us are separated from God. That's just who we are. We, we are rebels because we're, we have rebellious hearts. But God in his love has made a way for us to have a relationship with him. We would love to talk more about that with you if, if that's you this morning, if that piques your interest. But the offer on the table today is hope and belonging and peace and freedom. We finish today by responding in two ways. We're going to respond in song, but we're also going to respond through the table today. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to, to partake in the bread and the cup and uh, reminding our hearts today that, that through the work of Christ, there is no situation too confusing, no situation too chaotic, too difficult for God in His wisdom to navigate. One night, hours before their world was turned upside down, totally a night of chaos for them, Jesus sat around the table with his, his, his closest friends, his disciples, and he took the bread and he broke it and said, this, eat this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the end of the meal, he took the cup and he said, drink this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death until I come again. Today, we remember that because of Christ, we can expect God to grant wisdom in the moments of sufferings and trials and persecution. Let's live with expectant faith. Father, we thank you for today's time. We thank you for this, uh, this promise that you've put on the table for us to give us what we need, your perspective in the moments of, of crisis, in moments of chaos, in moments of confusion. And we pray that today that you would help us to be bold, to ask you in humility for that. Lord, we pray that you would be working on our hearts, not just in this moment, but all throughout the week as we think about your character and your nature, that you would grant us the right expectations of who you are. I pray for those who are here who, who are not in relationship with you, that, that they would be bold and to, to come forward at the afterwards and just to talk to us, to ask questions, just to, just to say, hey, what were you talking about that? I want to know more, or to receive prayer over that, that you would bring understanding to their hearts. So have your way in this time, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.